Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Mobin Master, a consultant radiologist based in Melbourne, Australia. Mobin is one of very few expert radiologists who is also trained as a cosmetic injector, and his unique skill set has given him the opportunity to become a leading authority on the emerging specialty of aesthetic radiology. Using his radiology training, Mobin now injects using live ultrasound guidance of the face for more accurate filler placement and safer outcomes. He also uses MRI imaging to help diagnose filler-related complications, such as lumps, nodules, and swellings. This way of injecting is highly skilled, but has huge potential, not only for everyday injecting, but also in the management of emergency complications, most notably vascular occlusions. We were just talking about um, the demand following post-lockdown. Obviously, extremely busy. People have been cooped up. You know, they've been going through withdrawals from not having their, their Botox and fillers. I, I was one of them. Um, so I think we've all ridden the, the wave of the, of the uh, I was driving Jake crazy, um, <laughs> ridden the wave of that, that, that pent-up demand, which is great. Plus that sort of flowed into the period of the year where we're traditionally always busy. You know, people mm-hmm. getting warm, people are getting body conscious, going outside, Christmas, New Year's, social engagements, what have you. What have you. It's always super busy around this period of the year. So I'm, I'm in- interested to see what it's going to look like sort of early next year when a lot of these government um, support schemes sort of tend to get pulled back, where they're going to get pulled back a little bit um, mm. and people aren't as aesthetically minded. So I'm keen to see how that looks. I mean, I'm optimistic, but I'm sort of cautious and sort of watching with great interest uh, as to how things are going to transpire. What about you down in Melbourne? Well, look, at the moment we've just come out of lockdown, so it's it's extremely busy and there's a backlog. And as you know, I also yeah. work in a public hospital and the backlog is absolutely insane because mm. – yeah. um, there's been there's been fifty percent less diagnoses of cancer in the last six yeah. months. So there's crazy. it's crazy. We found a cure for cancer. Of course, what's happened is then not diagnosed. You know, well, is that because people were too scared to go? That's you, right. I heard, we talked about that, Jake. I think as well. People were getting so petrified of getting going for a test and then being quarantined that they were just going. Oh, I'm just not going to go to the doctor at all. Then no they're not showing. So, Correct. Yeah. And that's what's happening in the public hospital. So now. They've all come back and it's out of control and the pathology is is intense. We've got a lot of uh, patients coming in who are aesthetically minded who have come back. And I feel that we have the benefit of a crystal ball. So what I'm using, my mantra is currently using the model of the UK and what's happened there and also in New Zealand mm. and Perth. New Zealand and Perth have been open for quite some time and they've been saying that because a lot of people, well, most people can't travel, they are spending a lot of their money on aesthetics because mm-hmm. they've got yeah. a bit of extra expendable income. And these are the people that have been lucky enough to have jobs and are in secure positions. Also in the UK, it was interesting to hear that a lot of injectors, there was a survey that was done by uh, Tim Pierce, and they said that a lot of patients were coming back two months after their treatment post-lockdown. So it was at the interval, was it the batches of botulinium and in my mm. opinion, we're talking about uh, neuro uh, um, botulinum toxin at the moment. 
I feel yeah. that it's because of the interval. So I've been studying all my patients and seeing the interval has been longer than it ever has been. So therefore, I'm actually increasing their doses mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or by up to about 25%. So time will tell in the next few months whether they come back early or not. But they've been very happy so far. But I've been hitting them a, a bit harder because the UK has already told us that story. But I think in addition to that, which is definitely true, and you know, you ask your patient when they were last there, no one can remember. It was eight months, three months, two months. They, they just don't know. Hmm. But also, they're just more aesthetically aware. They've been staring at their face on Zoom and webinars and FaceTime, <clears> you know, locked away, staring at their mirror every day and kind of stressing about stuff because they haven't been able to get their treatments. So I think their mm. expectations just went through the roof as well. I, I, I really don't believe oh. it was real. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't see any yeah. of that. But I mean, David, you even reported that in your own clinics, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, we're getting tons of it. We're getting tons of patients saying, oh, you know, my Botox has worn off, my Dysport's worn off, you know, I need to be retreated. And <clears throat> some of them were quite genuine. I mean, you could see that it had worn off, but as, as you were saying, it's just probably the delay in treatment. Um, mm. People have missed their regular routine and then they've sort of getting that that strength back in the muscle. So it's probably a bit of that. Could be, I mean, I don't know. Is there any indication for stress and people like just having higher anxiety levels and stress, maybe having some sort of uh, effect on the longevity of these treatment of, uh, of Botox and so on? Well, interestingly in Melbourne, what I've seen anecdotally with my patients is that their skin and their tone and everything appears to be better. They look better. They look more relaxed because maybe the stresses of everyday life are not the same during lockdown. They've spent time with their family and they've just rested. They're getting more <clears> sleep. People were going to bed at nine o'clock. I was, someone <laughs> would ring me at 8.30 and, and my wife would go, who's ringing at this hour? <laughs> it was like that. And we were out by nine o'clock, 9.30 at night and then get up yeah. in the morning in the backyard in the exercise yard and do your exercise. Yeah. I mean, as you know, you guys didn't experience the extreme stage four lockdown no. that we experienced in Melbourne. It was mm. intense. It was yeah. very, very long. It was quite hard, but people's skin... I don't know, uh, maybe also the masks was protecting their cheeks from the sun. That's a fantastic yeah. thing. They, yeah. By also default, they were protected. Too. That's but right. But then you've got the mask knee, so, you know. You wear a hat, you wear a mask and sunglasses, you're only going to get exposed a little bit in the temples and that's about it. So, <laughs> you know, and also less driving. And but what about the yeah. people who wear their masks on their forehead? Well, the foreheads, the, the forehead has no pigment. It looks fantastic. <laughs> the rest of it, can't say much about that. <laughs> But like, I think the uh, I look up the patient's files and I ensure that, okay, three months, three months, four months, oh, six months. Mm, um, yeah. A lot of people miss that window in June. So most of my clients I haven't seen since February and we are November. Mm. That's yes. a long time. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Now, mate, I'm uh, going to push us forward because we've got so much to cover. And I know yeah. we've already done a webinar with you before in, during our lockdown, which was amazing. Actually, we had such good feedback and we're kind of aware that, you know, we had a limited number of people listening or watching, should I say that one, that we thought we'd do a formal podcast. So thank you for coming back. It's always a pleasure to chat and talk to you about this kind of stuff. Thank you for having me. You know, you're sort of the resident or national resident expert in aesthetic radiology, which is kind of new for many injectors. There'll be a lot of people listening saying, what the hell is that? So do you just want to give people a bit of a background as to, you know, your your day-to-day job? You've already mentioned you work as a radiologist, um, but of course, intertwining that with injectables and just explain how we got to, to this stage. 
Um, so I, I guess the development is was in its infancy a few years ago and I think overseas, Australia, it's still sort of in its infancy's infancy, but overseas, particularly in Holland, you'd know um, a lady, Leone, who's practiced in phlebology for many years, who's developed a lot of these ultrasound uh, skills and published some papers on it as well. So she's she's been one of the uh, earliest earliest leaders, and the Koreans, in fact, have have been uh, working on something for the last five years and developing uh, ultrasound anatomy, um, which I'm not sure where the radiologists were involved. Mm. But aesthetic radiology, as such, is a kind of a terminology that uh, was around many years ago and was kind of mentioned as phlebologists in the terminology of phlebologists. But what I tried to do is extend it out to this is imaging and aesthetics, purely about aesthetics and imaging, not even limited to the face. So I get called to look at MRIs for buttock implants and fat implants all over the body as well. So it, it, it's a whole a whole new genre that I think is very exciting. And I think yeah. uh, it's great to get our entire industry involved and well-trained. And just fill us in on your, you know, your, your job, your training, and, and why you got into aesthetics. Well, I started off um, obviously as a radiologist, a specialist, did the specialist training, et cetera, which includes ultrasound, MRI, CT, all the imaging from head to toe. And then following that, I started reporting a lot of phlebology work, which is in the aesthetic realm, isn't it? You know? So that's veins for people who don't know what varicose phlebology veins. is. So varicose veins <laughs> in the legs in particular. So I report a lot of the ultrasound scans. And there's a clinic, a good friend of mine, Goran, that runs Victorian Dermal Group. Um, he's he's a uh, sonographer. He's got a master's in sonographer, sonography, and uh, he's also studying nursing as well. So he's he's going to be dynamite when he's through. He's got a master's <laughs> in sonography, <laughs> anesthetics. Forget about it. He's he's, he's going to be a master. Uh, yeah. He he basically encouraged me and said, you know, what are you doing? You know, you you, you need to get into aesthetics. And interestingly. I started aesthetics working completely blindly, right? Um, you know, about five years ago. <laughs> no pun intended. Pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and terrible pun. And I worked, I worked blindly for, you know, for about three years, two or three years. And then I got a referral from, uh, from Gavin Chan who said, look, oh, I've yeah. got a patient who has got some filler that's under her eye that uh, had swelling immediately post-treatment and we've done an MRI. And I had a look at it. And then after a while, I, went, I thought, wait a minute, her filler in her lips, how old is it? And he said, oh, it's about two years. Chock a block full of signal representing mm. filler. I'm like, okay, head scratching. Then he said, all right, well, I've had a number of goes around the orbit and he didn't want to go post-septal. And I saw the post-septal filler on the MRI. So this was the trigger for all of this a few years back. And then I thought, okay, we can do it under sonographic guidance. So mm. we got an ultrasound, we found the little blob, post-septal blob, and we had a few cracks at it. I think it was only one or two. She had some improvement of her bulging and her festoons, um, particularly, you know, it, was, it seemed to be, you know, in the eyelid and along the orbital retaining ligament, there was, mm-hmm. there was just residual filler there. Mm. And we did a repeat MRI and it was gone. And I thought, wait a minute, this is interesting. Just to translate that into sort of plain English, English. this person had filler sort of under her eyeball, but behind the membrane that separates the skin from the underside of the eyeball. Mm -hmm. 
basically got under the eyeball. Yes. And it was, wow. It's an event that can happen. It can happen to anyone. Yeah. Know? And it was via cannula as well. So something to think about is that a cannula could perforate that membrane. And it was a young patient too. It wasn't mm. an older patient. Mm. But this, 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 these things happen. And so this triggered a whole bunch of ideas. And I'm thinking, well, number one, this is a great application to do an MR on and then an ultrasound on very stubborn, difficult cases to work out how to get rid of filler and to map it. So I call it MR cognitive mapping. So MRI, cognitive using the brain and drawing a map as to where it is because I can translate that to a picture or exactly where it mm. is anatomically. And on the top of that, you get an ultrasound probe and you can visualize where it is, hopefully, if it's not too old. And because the lip filler was there for ages, I thought, well, this is weird. And then we started scanning. You know, I got, I got a few referrals and I started getting referrals from other places, et cetera. And then I basically set up aesthetic radiology thinking, well, we need to get more information on dermal filler, particularly with mm. longevity, et cetera. And the rest is history. So now in PRS, there's the first article ever that demonstrates longevity of filler in 12 of the 14 patients that we scanned. Uh, they had not had filler for two years, and there was definite demonstration of filler, one of which had filler in the tear troughs that was 12 years old, and it was hyaluronic acid. Yeah, right. Wow. When you're looking at these scans, how do you identify it as filler? I mean, what, when you said you picked up a signal, what does that look like? How do you know what you're looking for when you see um, that on the scan? Is it just here as like, uh, like tissue or like bone? How do you sort of identify? So, so what, what it is is like? basically it's fat. And what we have is a sequence on MRI that's called fat saturation. So it knocks out the fat right. and becomes black, right? Filler right. generally looks like the same signal as fluid, very similar to fluid, but it's not as consistent. You'll see the little linear lines through it and tissue intervening into, uh, in between it. So that's how you tell the difference between fluid and filler. And on fat sat sequences, it's crazy. It's just bright as day, white, and the fat is black. And you're looking in the fat, let's face it. You're looking in the subcut fat, subcutaneous fat. So it's it's relatively easy, but was, of course, you know, total of, you know, six extra years of training on the top of medical school and additional experience, it, 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 you know, and MR, MRI was one of the hardest things for me to learn. And uh, I guess you get there eventually. It's just, it's just called repetition. Can I ask, yeah. what right. signal or, sorry, what color on the MRI does filler show that, you know, water or lymph or any other liquid doesn't? It's not, it, it's the way in which it, it's the, uh, I guess the morphology, the way, the pattern of it. Yeah. So fluid is right. like a ball. It's, it's a consistent white blob, very bright, and it looks like a ball of white stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas filler will look like a ball, but it's not quite as bright. Um, sadly, radiologists see, we don't have color. We're in black and white. Yeah. <laughs> so everything's a shades of gray. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Fair enough. And then, so yeah. you, you did a couple of cases, you set up your business and where is the specialty now? Cause there's very few of you doing this. Uh, well, I've got, there's a few, there's a few actually developing, uh, in, well, interestingly, um, I'm working with, uh, Stefania Roberts, as you know, quite closely, and we're doing some ultrasound papers together so she's yeah. had many years of experience with ultrasound and that's in combination with goran the sonographer who's got a master's in uh, mm -hmm. sonography so we've got 
20 years of injector experience. We've got a master's in sonography. We've got a radiologist that's also dual trained in injectables. This is a great team that we've yeah, absolutely. pulled together. Yeah. But, but do you have colleagues in other states or do you chat to Leone? Do you chat to people in the States? Like how, how many of you do you think are doing this? Worldwide, you know, I think the, the Koreans, I haven't heard of many yet. Leone, definitely, we know she's doing it. There's also MRI-wise, there's very few that use MRI and ultrasound because there's very few radiologists because, you know, you, you can't just buy a scanner. It's the one point, yeah. whatever million dollars scanner. For mm. ultrasound, there are quite a few people and the crew that are in Rotterdam have also got a few in the States that are uh, there as well. As well. Um, mm. So Clinic Aesthetic, I think it's called, is a, a guy Steve in Weiner? the States. Yeah, he's a guy in the States who's doing a lot of uh, ultrasound and he's very he's, he knows what he's doing. Right. He's, he's a plastic surgeon yeah. and he's very good. He knows what he's doing. Um, What's the... Um Sorry, cut you off. Uh, what, what's the difference between a sonographer and a radiologist? What do you guys do that's different? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what the difference is. So, sonographer is. is the technician that holds the probe and scans day in, day out. Right. The radiologist has to do medical school first and then do right. another five to six years of exams. Uh, a sonographer right. does three years, four years of radiography, and then they've got another postgraduate exam two years later. And my buddy right. Goran's done that plus another two years of a master's as well on the top. So he's, he's he could have he should have just gone to medical school. Next level. <laughs> yeah. He did that many years. Yeah. Um, so the sonographers right. are the ones that scan day in, day out. And they will be the best at finding anything in the face under ultrasound once they've got the experience at looking at the face. Right. I think yeah. you said to me, we were chatting a while ago, maybe it was during your webinar, that you know, you've got colleagues who are experienced radiologists, but this is just not a typical plane or a typical scan that you would ever do in a hospital for any particular reason. So Correct. even if they, you know, could interpret, oh, there's a signal there, they would never say it's no. hydronic acid. Well, they, they say odd signal. They don't know the fat pads, all that kind of stuff. And soon I'm going to be, as you know, I've got a publication on PRS. I'm going to be publishing a specific way of looking at filler um, on the internet, which will be through Radiopedia, which is the go-to uh, radiology website, and yeah. that'll hopefully educate the radiologists on it. Uh, I, I must say, though, in the last few weeks, I did train a radiologist in Sydney. So you do have a guy in Sydney at the uh, uh, Marta Hospital in the North Shore who mm -hmm. has done ultrasound-guided dissolve and knows how to interpret uh, filler on MRI, and he's also got a reporting template. So he's got a reasonable understanding of the fat pads and how to map it for you. So if you send it to him, he'll be able to report and say, hey, there's mm. you know deep medial fat pad. There is medial soup, lateral soup. There is temporal hollow filler, superficial or deep. So he'll give you mm. those landmarks yeah. which aesthetics understands. Mm. What's his details? Do you want to share them? So if anyone's listening wants to... Reach out yes, to so it's Sam McCormack. He's, right. he's the radiologist, and uh, it, you just have to get a referral to uh, for an MRI of the face, and yeah. it has to go to the Marta Marta uh, Hospital to the radiology department there, and just put his name all over it, and he'll he'll look at it. I think I think they'll call him anyway. They go, oh, I'm not reporting this. Can you please get <laughs> yeah. to report this? I don't know what I'm looking at. Yeah, I was going to say. I know you've sort of just been um, talking about how much training, you know, yourself as a radiologist and sonographers do. 
I'm sure there's a lot of in- injectors listening to this thinking, gosh, you know, is there any way that they could acquire this skill? I mean, I know they wouldn't be able to do the, the breadth of, of scans and have the same knowledge that, that, that yourself and say someone like Goran does, but is there scope to be able to train aesthetic uh, medical professionals to be able to do these types of scans for the particular type of work that they're doing if in the future people wanted to look at having this sort of facility in their own rooms or their own practices? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you, you you can't stop something like this. This is a train that's actually going and uh, yeah. people need to jump on that train. However, the training needs to be, you know, trained by those who are uh, quite experienced and have formal college training um, or yeah. have had a lot of experience in using an ultrasound such as Stefania and in aesthetics, the combination of the two. Or, for example, Goran, who's been around um, ultrasound and with me, we've worked very closely together. So, you know, they're the kind of, I guess you need to look at the qualifications of those that are training you. The other thing mm-hmm. is it's important that you're looking for small vessels and even for a radiologist, even for a sonographer, even for an experienced phlebologist, finding these these vessels are tiny, absolutely tiny. We've got to be careful that, People don't have you. Le- did you learn aesthetics in one day? No, same thing. It's exactly the same thing. So ultrasound can be learnt, but it's experience and it takes time. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be careful not to get overconfident or have a false sense of security and saying, "Oh, there's no vessel in that temporal temporal area. That's fine. Mark it off. That area is safe. Bang." That's that's yeah. the only concern I have. That people don't get a false sense of security just because they've got an ultrasound probe. It, yeah, you know, it takes time. And as, as I said, it's exactly the same as I didn't learn aesthetics in a one-day course. It took me a long time. I know, um, well, I'm pretty sure you've told me that you, you use ultrasound sort of day in, day out now. That's just how you inject. You're, you're looking for major and, and smaller vessels as best as you can. You're placing the filler in, in a layer that you can see, and that's just how you do it now. But do you think that's the way injectables is going to go, or do you think it's more for, you know, I don't know, if you're doing something on the jaw, looking for major things like the, you know, the main branch of the facial artery, et cetera. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Look, I, I don't use it day in, the day in, day out work that I do use it for is for dissolving for specific stubborn areas. So a lot of, I get a lot of tertiary referrals that get sent on from multiple different injectors that have had trouble trying to get rid of a stubborn area. I get the ultrasound probe on and I can see the stubborn filler and target it. And, there's been interesting cases, you know. We can we can talk about that. Too. Uh, that's that's a whole other night and bottle of scotch. But the <laughs> the uh, use that I that I, I use it for danger areas, specific areas. I don't inject do rhinoplasties or in the gabella in terms okay. of filler. However, in the temples at the moment with Stefania, you know, we're working on developing, you know, the right technique. This area here, generally speaking, I get the probe on and have a look and make sure there's no anomalies. And as you said, correct, this is the area that it is, I find it can be troublesome. On the angle of the mandible, you know, at, at the end of the jaw, I'm not too worried. And I've scanned multiple patients for my interest anecdotally. There's nothing there. There doesn't yeah. seem to be anything there. So Just I'm pretty happy with that one. You're originally pointing to your chin when you said there. Sorry, you, here. No, but when you first said you, you would scan uh, on the chin. No, I was going to go on about this area, but I'll, I'll get to that because um, okay. yeah, that area really bothers me. Here, here, right? <laughs> uh, 
However, and as you said, rightfully so, Jake, around the facial artery, of course, I find around the pregial sulcus, just before the chin and the chin area, there's variations and that submental artery can be a really, really naughty vessel. It's a sneaky bastard. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a sneaky much, one. Yeah. So therefore, I, I, would, I will put a probe on and it only takes a very brief moment to go, all right, where is it traveling and um, which layer is it in? And I'm doing a jawline. I'm inferior to it. And if I'm superficial, I won't knock it out. Or the mm. midline chin, people hit the midline chin and then they hit a branch of the submental artery. Mm. Midline chin yeah. is not safe, safe, safe. Sorry. You finish your lip filler and you dump it in the midline chin and you could still uh, knock something there. So I definitely have a look there. Um, in the cheek area with a cannula, I'm usually not too worried. I occasionally do have a quick look at the infraorbital and the zygomatic facial, make sure it's in a normal spot. The infraorbital artery doesn't have a huge amount of variation. Mm-hmm. If you can feel, you can feel the notch. That's got a good landmark. Zygomatic facial, not so much. That's pretty rare to hit that. I'm not sure why. Maybe you can explain mm. anatomically why it's rare. Mm. I think some people don't have one, um, but you, yeah. you'd know more than that than me. You're, you're reporting CTs all the time. But um, yeah, it's, I think it's fair, but it's also quite a small foramen. So it's tiny. You, it, you've got to really get in there and, and sort of be bang on the bullseye to, to sort of knock that out. But yeah, mm. it does happen. It's possible. Mm. Yeah. The infraorbital artery can be a, a monster as well. Um, oh, sorry, I, 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 the zygomatic um, forever. The zygomatic fascial is tiny. Yeah. Tiny. Yeah. The yeah. infraorbital can Definitely be not infra- <laughs> That's a different beast. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Mm. Yeah. So, so from day to day, I think, I think it's for the future of injectors who are listening to this, I feel that it's going to be an adjunct to the work. You know, the basic day-to-day stuff, you know, if you're doing a little bit of, um, you know, CK, CK12, if you're using those codes, MD codes, generally, you know, on the zygomatic arch, you're going to go, I'm not going to scan that. If you're doing someone that's getting an overhaul or you're going to go into a lot of areas or particularly in the chin area, you're going to do more than a small volume, you have a quick look. You Mm. look for the vessels. You look for the layers. Just curious, what type of sort of variation are you seeing in people when you do these scans? I mean, I'm assuming that we're sort of genetically all quite similar, but what sort of variation are you seeing when you're scanning the face in terms of where these these major bodies of vessels are? What are you seeing much difference between people, or is it minor? Not, not it- a huge, not a huge amount. Um, it it's it gives you reassurance that the anatomy is yeah. typical, but occasionally you will put a probe on here, and there's this monster, you know. Uh, inferior labial, and it's sort of finding its way a little bit more inferiorly than inferiorly, inferiorly than um, than usual. You know, it's right. supposed to travel sort of just under the lip and then come up and then just have its end artery uh, poke in there deep. But I have seen it a little bit lower. Um, I've seen it a little bit bigger, like quite big. Um, they're they're the main things you you look at, and there's sometimes there might be some venous surprises as well which, you know, yeah. great to avoid too because you're going to bruise someone. Yeah. I mean, when when you're scanning people, I mean, I know you're sort of looking to see whether there's, you know, things that you should be avoiding, but is there potential to be looking at things like I can identify there's bone loss there? I can see that you've got, you know, not a lot of collagen in those sort of areas. Are you able to sort of use it as a treatment plan to sort of identify areas where you may be able to, to assist them aesthetically as well from, I guess, a proactive perspective? I think... 
it's important to understand that ultrasound has its limitations. And that's the thing. Right. You know, you think, oh, I'm going to see everything. You, you, you have to understand limitations of an ultrasound scan, the probe, the way in which you put it on the face. It's, you know, I usually use a linear probe and it's, it's quite a few centimeters. So when you try to get around the orbit or super orbital or super trochlear, you try to turn on it, you've got to put a ton of gel to try to make sure that you've still got contact and you've got to get around corners. So that, that, that's one of the limitations. The other limitation is, yes, collagen, all that kind of stuff, it's, that's way beyond the resolution um, of an right. ultrasound scanner. Usefully, yeah. thinking aloud as you asked, volume loss of, say, the fat, how much fat is left, yeah. or whether it's filler and fat, that's very useful too. So for my day-to-day -day work, when patients have already had some filler, I can do a quick check and see how much filler is left. Or they'll say, I had filler three years ago. Can you check if there's any still there? I have a look. And mm. the only limitation to ultrasound is integration. I don't know what word we should use, integration, diffusion. Yeah. I don't know. But mm. that is when it becomes the same echo texture. That's the word we use for the signal, the echo texture or echogenicity it becomes the same as the fat. So if it's the same as the fat, it, you become blind to it. So the only yeah. way to see it is MRI. Because MRI gives yeah. you that beautiful contrast resolution, black and white. Yeah, uh, just because I know you want to ask a question, Jay, but I was just going to say quickly, also useful for the patients to say, oh, Dr. Jusline, I've never had any treatments before. I've never had filler before. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or they say, oh, no, no, it was, it was, it was nothing. And I haven't had anything you know, in my, in my cheeks and you put the probe on, it's like, well, it's plenty there. Uh, I was going to turn your, your comment around the other way around. So when patients say, you know, is my filler still there? Isn't really the important thing, well, is the clinical effect there? Like, what does it matter whether there's still filler there or not? The, the question is, are you happy aesthetically with what it looks like on the outside? Surely. That's right. Mm. That's right. And the, the problem is, though, is that they're looking in the mirror over a period of years, and I often get them to go through their archive and look at their old photos, and then mm. I'll say, wait a minute, you looked thinner before. Mm. Your face looked thinner. So let's check and see if there's stuff in the wrong spot. So if it's in the cheeks in the right spot and their cheeks aren't too big, leave it. You know what I mean? You yeah. don't need to add mm -hmm. to it. Or maybe you want to add a droplet to it. If it's yeah. affecting their OG line and they look like a ball, then I will do a linear thread of high lays and my formula is about 30 units per, um, say, 0.1 to 0.2 mil of filler, if you can mm -hmm. predict what it is. It's very hard to volume to check the volumes on. You can actually measure it, but... When it's all integrated into the fat, it's impossible to work out how much is in there because it's all meshed in with the fat, right? So I might do a linear strip and that under, on the OG line or underneath the chin to get that OG back. Or the nasolabial fat, don't ask me why. They say, I've never had nasolabial fat injections before, only mm -hmm. cheek injections. That many times I have seen nasolabial fat filler sitting in the fat. And you don't want it there, do you? No, looks like a sausage. Mm. And, and, and the flattening of the nasolabial folds is immediate. It is amazing. And I can't even count how many patients I've done that for. And even sometimes clinically, I take a punt at it and go, well, your nasolabial folds are very heavy. Some of them say I've had nasolabial, you know, the superficial 
treatment of nasolabial folds, I think eventually with movement and smiling, it's eventually going to squeeze up into the nasolabial fat. I don't know. But we this is still unknowns. Maybe it doesn't, or maybe it's been placed in the nasolabial fat. Do a dissolve and they flatten down and it's just it's fantastic the, the result you yeah. get. And then you can fill other places and get them get them looking great. Mm. I was gonna I was gonna ask about that um, in terms of the the way that filler moves and tracks around the face over a period of time as we age, we ex- we express we express our faces, it moves. Um, you sort of touched on it just then in terms of trying to figure out where the hell has that filler disappeared to? You know, I might've get it done, you know, in my sort of mid cheek area. And then all of a sudden I'm smiling and I can't see my eyes anymore after a few years because it's moved. I'm assuming there's some utility there in terms of being able to track where fillers actually disappeared to, or is it still very difficult because by that stage, it's just so well meshed or integrated into the tissue that it still becomes a, a very difficult proposition to identify. Look on, on ultrasound, it, it's difficult on MRI. I can tell you that uh, anecdotally, not not a formal study as yet, but what I've been seeing, and so far I think we've we're up to about, uh, you know, I've reported about forty to 50, 50 scans in the last couple of years purely for hyaluronic acid, and we've got a study going on that will add another thirty. So we're going to have forty five patients who haven't had filler for two years mm. in their mid cheek and see how much is there, and commonly what I see. I think the mid the cheek is what I can talk about because that's what I commonly see and what it looks like. It tends to uh, follow the inferior margins of the orbit and then sort of run inferiorly like this, probably parallel to uh, zygomatic facial lumen, I guess. Yeah, mm. um, it just runs along sort of inferiorly. And uh, but do you sort think of almost, almost with the uh, from the tear trough down towards the uh, angle of the mandible, it sort of goes on a on an angle like that, and it must be because of smiling. But I don't know whether it moves or whether it's placement or not. This is this is all stuff that we need to answer. We need to scan a patient directly post, which I've had one, and then scan them again in eighteen months, which I'm going to do in a couple of weeks, and see if it's moved and scan myself again in two years and so on and follow people and just see what actually happens. Well, mm. that, that's kind of the thing, you know, the control that you don't have of your cohort currently is injection technique and same filler and, you know, same injector maybe because it's going to be so variable. I mean, Correct. you know, many years ago, I was taught how to do a cheek and we were told to place it all superficially and you know everyone had chipmunk cheeks and and now we <laughs> place it deep and it's just changed so much and and a lot of injectors and including myself probably think we're in the right place and sometimes maybe we're not so and, and you know and that's probably the issue hmm. and and being on bone interestingly for example I've seen a lot of temples and on bone on bone that's what everyone says right <laughs> And I've seen it in the loose areola tissue. I'm like, what is it doing there? <laughs> yeah. um, I've also seen it on ultrasound on an injector. I won't say who it is. Scanned and had a look. And I'm like, this is integrated. It's a bit on bone, but some of it was actually sort of dissecting the fibers of the insertion of the temporalis muscle. So, you know, you're trying to undermine the muscle, but realistically, you know, you're supposed to be 45 you know, 45 degrees, I don't know the way you do. I don't do 
temples. I'm going to be doing them under ultrasound moving forward. Yeah. Probably in the next few months, I'm, I'm training myself up to get the right plane and doing it purely under ultrasound. Yeah. But on bone at the, you know, the Arthur Swift point, you, you're trying to undermine the muscle and you often dissect the actual muscle itself. Yes. And is that the neuromodulation that they've been talking about at all yeah. these conferences? Mm-hmm. The fact that you're actually damaging an insertion site of the muscle or is it true modulation? Well, we know with the muscle that it's plastered onto the bone. So you, you can't really get under it. You're in it at best. So, you know, you put your needle down and we know that when you inject the filler on bone or what you think is bone, the filler will track up into the path of least resistance and some of it will end up in the superficial layer, whether you're an expert or not. That's just how mm. it is. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I often wonder whether, although needle seems to be sort of logically, I'm, I can feel the bone, I'm touching the bone, I'm on bone, it might be a worse way of doing it. Yeah, it may diffuse. I mean, uh, I think te- temples still need a lot more, a lot more development as to which is the best layer aesthetically and with regards to uh, safety as well. Some people go into the loose areola tissue. Some people go between the deep and superficial layers of the uh, uh, temporal fascia. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Going to ask you a slightly political question um, because this is just the nature of the industry that we're all in, right? Sometimes can get a little bit political. It's curious as to whether you've had sort of any negative feedback or pushback or people sort of, you know, I guess criticizing what you're doing in terms of taking this approach at all. I'm just sort of curious. Um, and if so, what is it? <laughs> not not yet. So obviously, I'm not doing the right thing. I need to keep going because <laughs> once you get the haters, you know you're going. You're not in the right famous direction. enough. As soon as you are, you'll get it. <laughs> I'll I'll know that I've got enough hype once I start getting the haters in. (laughs) So nothing is yet. It's been very positive and I'm playing my cards very carefully. I'm no better than anyone. I'm lucky. I think I'm very lucky that I've fallen into this situation and and, and I've got those advantages because um, I use those tools and I'm grateful that I've got them. It's just like, I sometimes think, how how could I have done this without some of those tools? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave and I were talking just before we started and we wondered whether in five or ten years' time we'll sort of all be doing what you're doing or better and there'll be like a paradigm shift where we look back and we think, bloody hell, I can't believe that I was injecting temples with a needle down onto Swift Point. It, you know, we, we might look back at it and realize how ridiculous it was or maybe we'll realize it was the best thing we ever did and we shouldn't complicate things. Who knows? You don't want me to tell you what I've seen on the temples, do you? <laughs> Not really. I don't want to know about those temple arteries. I want to know. I don't want what to tell it? you about the vessels right there. Yes. Quite yes. scary. Yeah. Um, I've put a probe on the temples quite a few times and I've, I've been surprised at where the frontal branch of the uh, uh, superficial temporal artery can travel and it comes up and sometimes it's right there and, it, and sometimes it just does a big turn over the globe and then it anastomoses wonderfully with which i can't see but it's getting sort of towards there and very close to the um supraorbital artery which we yeah. know communicates with the internal carotid artery as in the internal system of the brain so uh, the that that little branch at the temples is uh, can be quite naughty as well and that's why you know, I'm waiting until, and you know, my service may not be the best because I'm not providing temples yet. 
yeah. but I want to be able to do it under ultrasound and very carefully. Mm. And, you know, yeah. if you're using a heavily cross-linked product, who knows how long it's going to last? We don't know yet. Yeah. So just to finish the temple chat and then sure, we can sure. move on. Um, for those injectors listening, I, I think um, Stefania Roberts, she did a talk like last week at AMWC. Yes. Was that your work with her or? Together, yeah. This is the work we've been working so, together. So what, what are you proposing to do a temple safer and better? Well, under sonographic guidance, we, we try to work out the appropriate layer and the, the technique as well. But um, watch, watch this space. At the moment, we have to uh, keep it under wraps a little bit because we're working on... <laughs> Well, I know Something. that um, this isn't a secret. I don't know how much she revealed. I didn't go to that conference. Well, unfortunately, so it was much. about three in the morning and I was definitely asleep by then when, when she was talking. But I, I know that Stephen Liu had a sort of a simple, maybe not foolproof technique where he would blunt um, a needle on, on like a dressing pack sort of um, sterile field. So it was a bit blunt. And then he would go into the skin and then you would sort of feel a pop when you're through the superficial fascial layer. And then mm. he would sort of be relatively confident that he was in the right layer between, um, you know, uh, the, the two fascial layers where he wanted to deposit the filler. So it's neither mm. deep nor superficial. It's sort of um, mid-temple, I guess. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and that um, layer yeah. could be the 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 great the, the beneficial layer. I have to review all those layers and study them very carefully because, you know, even as a radiologist, we don't use a lot of this, uh, a lot of the detailed plastic surgical anatomy. So I had to restudy it all and then go into this extreme detail there's 10 layers to the temples yeah. 10 yeah so yeah. you know it's it's um not an easy area you have to mm. the anatomy is quite um intense it's quite significantly yeah. uh complex so we're talking about um the filler basically blocking these vessels and causing all sorts of horrible things to happen like tissue necrosis blindness but i think when you were referencing the temple and that carotid artery is that sort of what you'd be worried about in terms of a stroke is that is that sort of yeah. what you're because i'm just trying to I, I don't know much about that particular uh, complication blindness. obviously we've heard about blindness to the nth yeah. degree but that's the main that's the main that's the main concern because it does communicate with the upper face and the upper face communicates with the you know internal carotid artery so it goes backwards and then forwards into the ophthalmic artery which supplies the retina um, which is at the moment there's no real Real treatment. We've, we know that retrobulba as an injection under the eyeball with dissolver highlays, it just doesn't work. You know, they did a rat model on PRS, did not work. Right. Um, so, so prevention. You know, and it's extremely rare. Let's be real here. It's extremely rare. But um, yeah, we we don't want to be a a, a, a publication or statistic. Hundred yeah. percent. Can I just go back a, a couple of steps and just talk about ultrasound in general? Yeah. You know, most people know that you can put a probe on a pregnant woman's tummy and, you know, see the baby and that's what an ultrasound is. But how is it working? What, how is the picture created and, and what are you basically seeing? So it, it, it's basically, it sends out a sound which is beyond the limitations of the human ear. Mm -hmm. So it's in megahertz. So human ear is an... This crosses over to my music knowledge. <laughs> 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, right? 20 to 20K. We can't hear sub below 20 and we can't hear above 20,000. And at 20K, above that and just above that, you've got frequencies that dogs hear, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Ultrasound is in megahertz, not 
kilohertz, you know? So kilohertz to megahertz, you could imagine it's a very, very high frequency. And what it does is it hits tissue and it bounces back and various tissues, when they bounce back, have different shades of gray, basically. And that's how it differentiates tissue. So that's called B mode, which is black and white mode or the simple mode where you're looking at your tissues, say the tissue layers in the temples, for example. Mm -hmm. Then there is what's called uh, color Doppler. And what color Doppler does is that it receives information with regards to movement of each individual blood vessel and the direction, Mm -hmm. right? So red is not artery. Blue is not vein. Red just means it's moving away from the probe. Blue means it's traveling towards the probe. Mm -hmm. You can reverse that if you wanted to. But it shows you the direction of flow and that's how you actually find the blood vessel. It picks up basically individual red blood cells. And in a vein, sometimes it's amazing. You can actually see the little trickles, the little twinkles of little little just vessels to coming through. Clarify that. You're not seeing a tube-like structure. You're just seeing Oh, you do. Yeah, color. yeah, you see that as well. Okay. So okay. you can see the structure of the artery, but you're mainly Absolutely. looking at the flow. Yeah. So you find that vessel first. And then you put on your color to see whether it's an artery and an artery has a different type of flow to a vein. So there's a few steps. And then one step for an artery, for example, you click on power Doppler and what it does is you'll hear a sound and you'll also see the waveform, which is like your heart that's sort of, you know, explained simply sort of goes, it makes that sound. Whereas a vein will go, continuously yes that was quite so good that's how bet. you tell the difference wow. between the two it takes me back to the days right. of going down asking for an ultrasound and hearing all these weird noises in the room yeah yeah that's right <laughs> they're, they're the sounds you're hearing because they're listening to the vein versus you know the artery the umbilical artery versus the uh the vein fair enough wow. and i think you've already touched on uh sort of the the main colors that you're seeing but it's black and white right yeah it's black and white and you know for example with with uh, with bone, you know, it'll be bright, very white. Yeah. Um, if it doesn't transmit, ultrasound just dissipates in air, mm-hmm. right? So you can't ultrasound someone's lungs. Right. It okay. doesn't reflect back. It just goes through. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking right now, our sound just dissipates and goes. Yes. So you need something that is reflective, and they've all got different types of reflection. So fascia, for example, is often a bright white line. Yeah. So the temporal fascia will be a bright white line. The walls of an artery is is relatively bright, so you can see it. And what you can do is look at, with the probe, you look at it in long, longitudinal to the vessel, or you can go in transverse mm-hmm. where you see the vessel end on where it's just a circle. And that's just the direction of your probe. Yeah, that's where you turn the probe. Okay. So, right. Yeah, free training. <laughs> <laughs> well, then the other one is... MRI, I guess, in terms of how does that work? I mean, I've had a couple before where you go into this tube and I, I'm, if you're afraid of uh, enclosed spaces, probably not the best place for you to be. It's quite a full-on process. You're in there for well, like we have to study an physics hour sometimes. Yeah. The, the physics is of MRI, I read the book 15 times before I eventually got it. So anything I say to you will just sound like mumbo-jumbo. It's, it's, it's nuts. It's, Come it's on, a Logan massive, Hawkins, tell all us. All it is is a massive, it's a massive magnet. And it changes the direction right. of your molecules, right? The molecules of oh, water, sound, the water of the body. Good. <laughs> yeah. And, and, then, and then what happens is it, we send a bunch of pulses and then the time it takes for these molecules, they change direction. 
mm-hmm. for the time it takes for those molecules to relax, their differences give you a difference in the grayscale, how gray, dark, bright, or black it is. So if something okay. relaxes really quickly, it's going to have a different density to something that relaxes very slowly. Yeah. So it sends a bunch of pulses and all these sequences are different as well. So the physics is, um, yeah, it's a massive brain fart. Yeah. <laughs> is, that what all the, is that what all those those pulses are where it sort of That's goes, what the know, sounds, they're the gradients. Yeah, so a different gradients. Right. And it runs along the, you know, around the, the, the gantry, the tube, and it sends all these pulses around the whole body. And you've got, on your body, you've got this receiver, the heavy thing that sits on your chest or on your face. It's a receiver. And that, yeah. the signals, the gradients get sent into the face, for example, and then the receiver receives the relaxation times of your tissues and shows a differentiation right. of tissues. And that's why right. MRI has such great contrast resolution, meaning the contrast between certain types of tissues. That's why it's great for fat and filler. It's fantastic. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess that was going to, yeah, well, go on, Jay. I was going to say the different way you'd use one or the other, but go for it. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I guess it's important to realize that neither of them are using radiation, which is good. Excellent. Um, but if you've got any metal work in your body, don't go on an MRI scanner. It sucks. Yeah. Don't go. Like, don't, don't go with <laughs> a pacemaker. A pacemaker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially with a pacemaker. That's right. That could ruin your day. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, the biggest problem I find with MR at the moment is the jaw it's, and the mandible and teeth. Uh, so people are going to say the expense. Yeah. Yeah. Because if they've got amalgam or various metals or titanium, especially in their jaw, you lose your whole lip filler, your jawline, everything's just gone. It's just a big black blob. So, you know, that, that's, that's a problem um, as well. Joking aside, yeah. what would happen if someone with, you know, old-fashioned mercury fillings jumped on an MRI scan and they forgot to disclose oh, it, it? Titanium and all that stuff is safe. It's just that it's diagnostically useless. Ah, so it won't uh, rip out the body or the teeth. No, 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 no. The only thing you've got to be careful <laughs> of is shrapnel and bullets and stuff. And <laughs> I yeah. work at Footscray on the west side. And uh, that's a very (laughs) developing area and it's got the biggest growth in Melbourne. To work in the east side, you know, you've got to be about 100 years old and you've run your practice for the last, you know, 300 years with family members, et cetera. You know what I mean? (laughs) The younger guys can't get in until these guys actually disappear or don't pass it on or whatever. So a lot of the new guys are working in the west where they still don't have all the practices and clinics, et cetera. Yeah. And mm. the patients come in full of shrapnel sometimes from overseas. Wow. It's, it's fascinating. Wow. And if Gosh. you have shrapnel near a blood vessel, so if or metal work. So if anyone's had metal in their eye in the past, you've got to get an X-ray done because MRI can make it move. So that's the only thing oh, to watch wow. out for. But titanium and all that kind of stuff, the average person is not a problem. Mm. But hold on. And how do you know that you've got metal in your eye? Surely if you suspected that, you'd do something about it. Uh, some people don't. A lot of metal workers don't know, so we automatically x-ray them to make sure there's no shrapnel in their eye. Right. Okay. It could be like just really fine particles that could yeah. be in there that could Doesn't have popped in much. it, wouldn't it? It yeah. doesn't take much. But yeah, shrapnel near a blood vessel, say, for example, near a thigh, it can heat up or it can move. So MRI can yes. theoretically heat up tissues as well because it's a massive mm. magnet. Yeah. Right. And clinically, why would you choose i know it's a silly question but i just just um, i'm sort of interested and i guess anyone that's listening to this it's not medical probably wants to know why would you choose 
or what indication would you use to choose one over the other, an MRI versus uh, For ultrasound? the face, I'm going straight for ultrasound as much as possible because it's simple, it's, it's easy. But the biggest problem with ultrasound, it's operator dependent and right. you've got to be there live. So if the operator is not good at scanning, you're not going to find what you need to find. The other reason why I'll do MRI is if on ultrasound you can't find it or if it's, say, more than three years old, MRI will find old filler. Ultrasound, it's a lot harder. So maybe okay. we've sort of assumed that people have watched our webinar and we haven't, but you're, you're using MRI for sort of chronic diagnosis Correct. of mysteries and funny yes. things going on, but ultrasound is more day-to-day -day or... You know, if something acutely happens, you can do it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. that's that's the main the main application. MRI is, is yeah definitely a chronic issue. The most common thing, and this is this is coming in droves now, is festoons or orbital swelling in the mornings, tear troughs. Haven't had tear troughs for over two years. Mm. I'm getting a lot of cases like that, and you know you have to warn. Patients, if you've got an orbital problem, you've had some tear troughs done, et cetera, look, not everyone's got to get it. I'm just saying that I get a skewed approach or view on life because I get all the comp I get a lot of the complications, right? So I'm, I'm only getting the, the, the stuff that's a, a problem. So I, I think people need to be aware that my what I see is not going to be everyday living. Most people are very happy, right? So this orbital swelling that I've, I've, uh, I get referred they try to dissolve and they don't manage, so we end up going to MRI and then I have to target it to get rid of it. And if people out there do have that problem, they need to be warned that their tear trough will come back yes. and they need to wait and get used to it after three to four weeks before they start refilling. It can be a shock to the system yeah, when you haven't time. had troughs for like <laughs> five years or 10 years and then, oh, my God, I've got troughs. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so... I, I guess I work the other way because I don't have the benefit of scanning, but you know, I've sort of put my hand up to see people who have had stuff ups and problems because there's nowhere to go. Exactly what you said. There's nowhere for these people to turn and yeah. we don't have a Mobin in Sydney. So, you know, th there'll be a few um, experienced injectors who will be happy to try and help these people, but it's difficult because, you know, I'm sort of going from a, a sort of a vague history of, oh, I, th I think I had tear troughs. I, I can't really remember. I don't know how much was put in and it's not there all the time, but sometimes I get swelling. Um, but, you know, you pre presumably before you were doing ultrasound, were you doing blind dissolving in a similar fashion or not? Uh, I think within a year or two of injecting, I, I, I hadn't dissolved too much and not not in the troughs okay so for me pretty much from the outset i've had the benefit of of yeah of imaging and their patients that have been elsewhere and have struggled yeah i mean you know this is purely anecdotal i must have seen i don't know 20 20 people like that and you know the highlights worked that right that you know the next day they're calling me going oh my god i look tired and i'm hollow but you know it worked when can Were I getting swelling? Uh, no, just, just it, you know, it, it seemed to just dissolve. And then the question was, when can I refill? That's because right. You're saying four <laughs> weeks. <laughs> you know the story. You know yeah, the story. Why, why four weeks instead of two or one or three? Well, I, I feel that some people actually do get used to it. And then when you refill, you know, the swelling settled down, they've gotten used to it and they may not want to fill 
as much. Mm. Or some patients actually say, you know what, I'm used to it and I don't want to have tear drop filler anymore. Yeah. So it gives to... them the chance to absorb yeah. the new look. I've got to say, I'm in this yeah. situation right now and we had the chat and she was fully aware of what was going to happen and, and it did happen. She was more hollow and we're now in a kind of situation where she sort of wants the look of having zero tear trough, which is why she came to see me in the first place because in her opinion, she looked less tired, but she just looked swollen and puffy. Mm. And, mm. and you're in this sort of seesaw with these patients of, you know, what, what's better, looking natural or looking overly augmented, but in their view, from a 2D mirror view, less tired. Yeah, look, um, you know, what What about sort of a small, you know, dose 0.1, 0.2 in the lateral soup or something like that? Uh, sorry, uh, uh, medial medial soup rather than, than going all the way into the, the trough itself, you know, and then yeah. see how they go. Um, yeah, it's tricky. That's, that's but yeah, not- I mean, I, I think what we're basically saying is consenting an explanation before you jump in with high lasers is highly, highly important, both you know, just for their psychology, but maybe medical legally as well. Who knows? Mm. And and I, I'm also not as heavy-handed with my high lays, and I'm lucky that I can target. But I think we've been using way too high doses. So before I was, even when I was using ultrasound, I was using very, very high doses. Now I get patients back a few times and try to use that formula, which was published, um, I think, relatively recent, 2016, approximately they they proposed i can't remember the name of the article uh, 30 to 40 units per 0.2 of a mil you know right. you, you don't need a, a huge amount if you know where it is yeah well i think you're the first person who when i saw some of your work i was like astounded because i think you were doing a live case uh, on the phone being instructed by leone from holland Yes. And you managed to use about, I don't know, 50 units of Hylase and you, and you sorted out a vascular occlusion. Well, that was with Steph. She, she hooked that up, which was great, Stefania. Um, I think I just had the brown pants syndrome that we know about and I just <laughs> wanted to get rid of it. Her lip color came back. Um, she improved within the same period of uh, time of presentation. So, you know, as we, as we know, if, if the presentation was one day, it completely resolves usually within one day, 24 yes. hours. Yeah. So I think she was a day and a half and then a day and a half, everything, you know, yeah. resolved. There's a whole, whole other arena and discussion. I think maybe you guys could think about is does high layers dissolve tissue? There's no papers on it. And there's a lot of rumors going around about it. And we do know that hyaluronic acid reduces and it's turnover reduces as you get older. Yeah. So that answer, it'd be nice to answer that question one day. Hmm. <clears throat> What you mean permanently? I mean, I, I've heard. Oh yeah, there's these rumors that oh, yeah. my tissue's collapsed and this and that. I've had thousands yeah, of of highlays, and oh, there's no papers on it. I mean, mm. you know, like you said, the, the, <laughs> yeah. well, the the theory is that you know you inject some highlays. You're obviously targeting both fat and filler when you're doing that, and for 24 hours, 48 hours, they'll they'll call you saying, "Oh my god, my face is collapsing." And then after about a week or two, they sort of calm down because it's just a new look for them, but they realize I'm kind of back to normal. Mm. So there are a lot of people out there who unfortunately, because of those stories, are scared to use Hylase. Mm. They almost treat it like battery acid, like they're going to dissolve someone's face if, if they yeah. you know, need it, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Mm. And so 
well, this is again anecdotal. I've never had a problem where, you know, they're completely asymmetrical and they look like a crater. But yes, they lose volume, of course. That's but the, the volume is probably the filler that was there. Correct. It wasn't exactly. their own fat. And it turns over regularly, you know, yes. hyaluronic acid. It's like your skin. Your skin turns over. I mean, your skin doesn't disappear if you scrape it a bit. It, it regenerates. I'll tell you what's not clear to me is, you know, and I've been guilty of this, you know, doing videos for Instagram just to sort of educate people. You know, we talk about, you know, five mils of filler being like a teaspoon and so on, but no one's ever told me what does that look like in terms of volume after it's been injected? Because of course the filler absorbs water and you get a bit of local edema, et cetera. So I've never quite been clear what volume we're actually creating with a mill of filler. Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone knows. Question. I don't think anyone knows the answer. No, no. Hmm. Wonder, <laughs> well, that's the fun of being in the aesthetic yeah. industry. It's a real uh, cutting edge industry. It's new. It's yeah. uh, exciting and uh, keeps everyone <clears> on their toes. And I think we're advancing a lot faster than uh, you know. We're kind of biting off a bit more than we can chew. I think. I'm not sure. Hmm. You might even get. Um, differences from patient to patient depending on their how they you know their their particular anatomy you might get someone that has a mill of filler and it goes a lot further than on someone else not just in terms of hollowness but in terms of as you were saying jake the hydrophilic effect like how much it's going to sort of expand and blow up depending on that person's face whereas a younger person that's probably got more moisture in there yeah maybe they'll get more bang for their buck it's definitely true i mean you know you get someone who's maybe a bit heavier set rounder faced um, a little bit sort of thicker skin that you, you can, you know, you can do some filler on their cheekbone and, and nothing happens. You just don't see yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite, and you wonder where the hell is it gone? Yeah. It's quite disappointing. And, and you know, you're trying to look, make them look contoured and slim and nothing happens. <laughs> and then, you know, you get someone quite slim and, and sometimes you, you even compensate for that and do smaller doses and you still get like these mountains of filler mm. and, you know, it just depends on their tissue coverage and, and uh, I guess how much fat they really have as, as to whether you get that effect or not. But um, yeah, everyone's different is basically what we're saying. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And, and I, th- I think, you know, the, the take-home message is this, is this is a developing area at the moment in terms of chronicity and issues. Uh, Sydney's now got a service that I've helped set up, which is great. You know, so if you have those issues, he's interested, he's excited, you know, and it's good to get a radiologist interested. I've also got a radiologist, a friend of mine from the UK who did plastics and was doing a lot of injectables and he works for Lake Imaging with me, which is fantastic. So another potential aesthetic radiologist. So he's got the background, he can read the MRs and I don't have to read all the MRs because I'm, I'm really getting tired <laughs> so i need a, i need a second person to start interpreting the mrs and he understands the fat pads etc and he started talking you know when i first spoke to him he goes well what do you what about the rheology you know what about the rheology of these fillers and how do we know uh you know which are the ones that last the longest and and how do we actually really know that they might like he he was straight onto it you yeah. know which is fantastic and i've given him a reporting template too so we've got two people in melbourne for mr and I'll train him up on, on ultrasound as well. We've got Stefania. We're going to have uh, Goran. So we've got a, a whole bunch of people that are quite um, uh, qualified to assist. And then eventually I'm hoping that, you know, we'll get a crew together that will have a proper training program. Well, yeah. the beauty of uh, radiology, I mean, I remember when I was a surgical trainee, sometimes at 
three in the morning where I needed something reported, these things get um, farmed out to Australia from the UK or yeah. wherever. So, you, you know, you don't really need to be the, the resident radiologist in Sydney, surely. You could be on a 24-7 reporting system worldwide. It's all digital. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the problem is, is insurance. So Australia-wide, for example, I get uh-huh. a lot of people asking for second opinions overseas uh-huh. and I'm not insured for that. The only option is to give an opinion to their plastic surgeon or their doctor or injector, an informal one, yes, and it goes to them as just a discussion. But I can't report mm. any scan from overseas. Australia, New Zealand is fine, but um, I think I've got enough mm. work, Jake. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> you want to give me twenty-four hour service? Oh, you can train me. Most no sleep for you, Mobin. No oh, sleep yeah. anywhere. Yeah, train me up in MRI, and I'll sit here all night doing it. No, was us. <laughs> well, look, I think I think the the MRs are. Not that common. You know, I get about one or two a week or something like that. It's not a, a huge mm-hmm. volume, um, but it's yeah. very good for research. And, you know, as I said, I want to plug my PRS article. If you go on PRS or um, you go to PubMed, you'll be able to find it, Dr. Mobin Master, and it's called um, uh, Hyaluronic Acid uh, Longevity and Localization MRI Evidence. And mm-hmm. that um, that's actually coming out on the actual... Um, Paper, paperback as well, like the old school paperback wow. in January. Oh. And it's online. For, it got selected as one of the online first. And the second publication about the uh, orbit is also accepted, which will come out, I'm not sure when, but that's about post-septal filler. That's also in uh, PRS. And I'm currently, if anyone's going to try, we're, uh, we're ahead of you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've, we've got, uh, I think we're going to have a trial of about 50 patients testing the longevity in the mid face that's awesome and so you know we'll have a nice a nice paper i think anywhere between 40 to 50 patients i think that's a decent decent cohort i know that you were calling for patients on on your website for for one of those trials am, am that's i right that's the one yeah okay so in the future do you think that you will be able to coordinate your you know your efforts with other injectors around the world just to get a bigger sample yeah, I think that'll be a great idea. You know, get thousands to 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 uh, identify where we're at, and I think it would be good to have a specific type of rheology mm. and study that rheology and its longevity to understand what kind of cross-linking lasts long yes. and what doesn't. And I've seen anecdotal evidence that low G prime dissolves. It's fine, yeah. six months, twelve months. On my own clients, MR them, and it's gone. Yeah, you know. Right. So I'll find out about my face. Uh, watch this space uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm going to MR myself. It's been 18 months, and I think this product says 18. I think it's 18 months. No, none of them should be more than 18 months. Is that right? Um, no, Filuma well, is um, licensed two years? up to two years. Up to two years. Yeah. Okay. Well, it wasn't Voluma. It was another product. I was going to ask you. Um, are you seeing? higher amounts of these sort of potential issues like with occlusions with different types of fillers. So as you said, like something with a higher G prime, are you finding that there are differences or, you know, that all fillers are sort of created equal when it comes to causing occlusions? In terms of occlusions, I, I don't know. Um, I can't answer that question. I don't have enough evidence and I haven't had enough cases referred to me. Um, I will be trying to set up an occlusion service here as well with Lake Imaging, but we're mm-hmm. doing a... Uh, um, what is it called? A uh, proof of proof of concept first, and I have to train up the radiologist. But that'll be great to at least have something 
in Melbourne that they've got somewhere to turn to. So we'll probably find a few clinics that are interested in collaborating with us and if they do get an occlusion. In terms of the rheology, yeah, yeah we, we we don't have an answer, do we, Jack? I mean, I haven't read any articles on specifically what kind of products are susceptible and what aren't. No, I mean... I just did a stupid little experiment on Instagram about a week ago and I took the newest, thickest, highest G-prime filler um, that I could find and it dissolves. I might take a bit more um, volume of highlays and maybe more concentrated highlays, but it definitely dissolves. So using your protocol of, you know, a set amount of highlays in the artery that's obstructed, I, I can't imagine it wouldn't work. It might just take a little bit more. Mm, yeah, and in terms of the prime, it's it, we don't we don't know at this stage. But in terms of longevity, early anecdotal evidence appears to be the heavily cross-linked, and the certain other types of technologies last longer. Mm. The ones that are supposed to last longer, yes, but a hell of a lot longer than we thought. Yeah, yeah. And the low G prime, and that's why I'm influenced by my anecdotal evidence in the lips. This sounds very strange, but my technique is low G prime first. See if they like the look. Did you like what I did? I do a lot of tenting, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If you liked what I did, I'm going to use another product, which is, you know, the company that's well known to have longer lasting filler. And I say, I'm going to give you something more semi-permanent. Yeah. And then I say, after two years, if it does move or have a problem, we can deal with that and just dissolve, for example, above the lip. I don't do vermilion borders anymore. Mm-hmm. I do a dollop here, dollop here. I don't run along the vermilion border yeah. because theoretically is that the cause of a lot of these patients? And I see it around laterally above the lip. I see a mm-hmm. lot of filler for some reason. Is it placement? We don't know yet. But none of my patients have come back with that sort of bulky top lip above the red of the lip. So I've got two theories on that i think it's just two because the tech and i'm not knocking your technique because i know you're good but we see on instagram you know there's almost like machine gun tending technique (laughs) where they're not even looking they're just bang 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 and you can see they're injecting filler (laughs) past the vermilion border into the skin you can see it It happens oh yeah um and then of course you know it's the volume thing The, the, the lip or i guess any part of the face has got a finite volume and unfortunately, people coming back after four months, six months, they might have five mils over a year or 18 months, and it's just too much. I think it's volume related. You know, it could be volume. It's only so much it can take. Yeah. And then the orbicularis uh, oris just squeezes it out. Squeeze, squeeze it up. And, but I don't do those kind of volumes. So I guess that's why I don't have those problems. Exactly. So I don't think it's the vermilion border that's the problem. It's technique and volume. And volume, yeah, it, yeah. it probably is. And and I think uh, if you you and I haven't seen that problem, then it and a lot of the stuff that we do dissolve and I dissolve is coming from a lot of um, other injectors. Oh, trust me, I see it Not all the mine. time. I mean, you can just walk around any shopping mall or any beach, and you know, you just <laughs> see it. It's just you know, it's it's almost like an epidemic. I, I really do think it's like a a, a problem. Well, I, I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't know because everyone's wearing masks here still. <laughs> Yeah, okay. uh, I haven't seen know. lips for a long time. I mean, uh, the weird thing is patients still want lips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Patients are still doing them. lips yeah. despite <laughs> masks. Um, and uh, they said, I want to do it for myself, which is which is fine. Um, <laughs> kind of final questions. Do, have you ever spoken to anyone like Greg Goodman or, you know, someone who has been in the game longer, you know, long and, and understands pretty much everything to do with filler about 
why is it lasting much longer than the companies maybe um, sort of suggesting? Um, I think I need to do a few more publications before the uh, big boys start talking to me. So, <laughs> fair enough. Bit of time. I mean, look, it's kind of you know, it's a great thing if you don't have a problem, you get a longer clinical result. But if you have an issue, like you said, you can have tear trough filler gone bad. You can be there for ten years, and and unfortunately, our patients almost don't believe it's filler. They think, ah, oh, you know, my dad's got puffy eyes. Maybe it's just that. Or maybe it's just fluid retention from, um, you know, my baby or whatever. And and unfortunately, it's just filler that's been there for years. And, and I think I think uh, one of the biggest issues around the tear troughs. I don't know whether it's the lack of hyaluronidase, uh, natural hyaluronidase in the body and the turnover. That is one of the theories. But I feel that the superficial periorbital fat, superficially around the eye, mm-hmm. versus the SUF doesn't have the lymphatics, that superficial layer. And so the orbic doesn't squeeze out fluid. And because hyaluronic acid loves water, it retains that fluid and it just doesn't squeeze squeeze out. That's why a lot of these people are waking up potentially puffy. So you could dissolve that superficial layer and try to be precise and just stick to that layer. It's not easy, as you know, you know, chipping away. That sometimes does solve their problem and avoiding the deep filler that may still be present. Mm. Mm. Um, I was going to ask you just quickly, I know we're sort of wrapping up, but one of the things that um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, if I'm, I don't want to be misquoting uh, Professor Goodman, but I think he was saying that he was pretty sure that every time we, you know, the, that you inject, you're causing probably little minor occlusions here and there. Mm. They're not of any major significance. So what what happens to those vessels that you leave occluded? Is it just the body just mops them up and gets rid of them and deals with them on their own if you don't remove that blockage? How, how does the body reconcile that? There's so many collaterals. That's the thing, Jake, right. you can answer that question as well. You know, it's, there's collaterals yeah, just, everywhere in the face yeah. and in the body. Yeah, I mean, you've seen those uh, resin sort of um, models where they've got thousands and thousands and millions of yeah. tiny little arteries and capillaries. So, you know, you block a tiny little one and the blood will find its way around 10 other ways. So yeah. that, that piece of skin will survive. But it's, I guess, and, and Mobin, you can answer this better than me, what, at, what, at what size vessel are, are you seeing on an ultrasound in terms of millimetres? And at what point does that become significant? Well, mm. I think the issue is, is sometimes your needle diameter can get into a vessel that's beyond the resolution of an ultrasound scanner. So we're looking at, you know, supraorbital and supratrochlear arteries. Sometimes they're large, but sometimes they're, uh, sub-millimeter. And once you get sub-millimeter, you're starting to get beyond the resolution. So if you tried to follow, we tried to follow the supraorbital uh, artery up into the forehead. And once, you know, it, it goes to a different plane in the forehead and once it peters off, it's beyond the resolution. You can't see it. It's way too small. So, you know, it's not a be-all and end-all either with ultrasound. We do have limitations, and I think that's an important thing to emphasize, that all these things still have limitations. But I will throw one curly. You're talking about (laughs) those images that you see, the MRI. I'll throw a curly, and I think once we get this off the ground, and if it does work, we'll do a whole podcast on it. Yeah, I've got a heating machine from these guys overseas that have developed MRI. A, MRA, which is the arterial angiogram showing all the vessels of the face on an MRA 
and then you import that data set into an app, superimpose your phone on the patient's face, and all the arteries are mapped. Is this the Belgian wow. plastic surgeon? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the only people in the world that are doing it at the moment. I, I've just got to look up his, look up his name. And so, um, they've, they've already got it on the market, but we, we're doing a, uh, a test on it as well. They're called... Um, yeah, he's, he's, I'm talking to the radiologist at the moment. They've got an entire team working on it. So I, we, we're kind of doing a, um, a, a test on it to see whether it actually, whether it's going to be a, a good thing. It's Ben uh, Hendricks, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've met him before. Nice guy. Yeah, so it's that. this also could be, and you, you can get an MR for a couple of hundred bucks, right? Yeah. Before all your patients, they get a map. Before you scan them, you hold the app on their face and you draw all the arteries on their face. That's pretty good too. See, I, I think they reached out to me on LinkedIn or, or probably reached out to everyone and, and I kind of loosely looked at it and I thought, that seems really time consuming, but maybe it would be... Uh, a 15 minute scan. Yeah, well, the scan is 15 minutes, but we didn't realize that they use a UV lamp. So mm-hmm. I'm going to be the guinea pig because it's not TGA covered at this right. stage for Australia. That's that's the issue. Right. Okay. So you've got to heat up the face, heat up the arteries so they dilate nicely. I was thinking you can just use Viagra, but they said they've already tried that and it didn't work. <laughs> True story. True story. Okay. And you heat up the vessels of the face. They've got – you get the specific sequences where it gets the shape of the face, MR angiogram, which shows the arteries only because mm-hmm. – mm-hmm it picks up vessels only of a certain speed. So it's only the arteries. Mm-hmm. And then on your phone, you've got an app and you superimpose the app on their face and you can draw the arteries that, uh, that were there. A bit like wow. um, that app that was, sorry, that filter that was going around on Instagram. Yeah. How did, yeah, wow. That's crazy. So that would be very cool and that would be less time-consuming than doing ultrasound on all these patients because you've got a map You've got a photo. You could take that photo and just have it on your computer screen every time you inject the patient, or you use the app, take a photo, and then draw where, you, you where the arteries are and avoid them. I can't do it the same yeah. time. Can you see? Yeah, yeah, thing? yep. A bit like that. But that app is a generic. Of course, but mapping with a similar thing. But this is tailored to the patient. They do it once, and you only have to do it once every ten years. Yeah. And uh, just wow. a shout out to Dr. Tony Book for um, developing that filter. It's yeah, that's really cool helped. Um, ju- you know, just you can use it in your consultation and just put it on your patient and say, "Look, there are some big bad arteries in here. I'm going to do my very best to avoid them, but I'm not a magician. I'm not Mobin Master. So um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's, come it's on. good. It's good for um, patient <laughs> education. So that I thought that was a great filter. So but look, it's exciting stuff to talk. There's a lot of exciting stuff yeah. to talk about that I think is going to you know, it's going to change, change a lot yeah. of, a lot of things. So, um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it feels like we're, it feels like we're just, we're still very much in the infancy. As Jake was saying, we're going to look back at this in 10 years and go, what the hell are we doing? We were just, you know, we're just randomly sticking filler in places and hoping for the best. And occasionally we'd hit something. And most of the time we wouldn't, and everyone was happy. You would be in, it's going to be, yeah. The prog- progression of time, progression of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you, you, have been around longer, a lot longer than I have, Jake. And I mean, uh, 10 years ago, I think Goodman and Stefania or 15 years ago, they were using, um, was it 20 gauge or 20, 
19 blade cannulas? Like rods, monsters. Yeah. It's basically like, like a harpoon. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so these guys are called augmented anatomy. Right. Okay. Augmented anatomy. So, you know, the other thing is the adjunct to this is it's so exciting that that's why I did radiology that augmented reality is being currently a big race with Google and Facebook and all these guys are trying to beat everyone to augmented reality. So this app could end up being goggles. You're looking at the patient's face. Yeah. The reality is there, but the augmented reality shows you the superimposed artery of that patient specifically. You've like just given me cool would that be well you've given me a great idea and i'm going to link you up with one of my old professors um from the uk Loban. his name is shafi ahmed and we're going to get him on to do a podcast so shafi if you're listening i'm plugging you for this but he's done so many cool things so he did the world's first google glasses um operation so he was wearing the glasses whilst sort of streaming this to 50,000 people around the world and they were interacting wow. and seeing what he could see whilst doing the operation, which was cool. But then last week, oh, sorry, yesterday actually, he did the first mixed reality surgical ward round. Oh, wow. It yeah. was insane. Yep. So, How did that work? Yep. What's a mixed I mean, reality? How does that, what does that mean? So it's you augmented. Have, yeah, so someone is wearing... Um, obviously something on the ward. So, you know, um, you can get a view from the ward and the patient, but then you've got a whole lecture theater of students anywhere in the world, presumably. Um, And then there's also someone in the lecture theater wearing the the goggles so they can see what the guy in the hospital is seeing, but they can also do cool things like um, wearing the HoloLens, I think they were using. You can sort of reach out into thin air and actually touch stuff and move stuff and that will that will show up on a powerpoint so you can literally wow. it's a bit like um what was that film minority report with uh tom yeah. cruise yeah. Yeah, a bit yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah. wow yeah so um this it's stuff is coming <laughs> in fact yeah, it's the, already the augmented here. reality is going to assist surgery in the first instance for sure you know they're gonna have the you basically you're operating you've got the glasses on you can see exactly what you're operating on for example bowel or a neurosurgery but it superimposes the vessels. You can superimpose veins. It superimposes everything and maybe color on the top of the actual template and the patient. So how yeah. good would that be? You know what's coming next. Mm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, I think we'll leave it on that tantalizing, yeah. exciting future. <laughs> we had so much more to ask you too. We didn't even get through them all. <laughs> no. We could talk forever. Uh, I think we're going to do multiple. Back. Sorry, we talked too much, didn't we? No, uh, good. So, much to, so much exciting stuff to talk about. I think you're our first, no, you're our second webinar guest who's also done a podcast, but maybe you'll be the first webinar guest to do two podcasts. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe, so maybe we'll, we'll get, get you, you back in the future. To, well, you have to get come up to Sydney, all this Zoom stuff, Jake and I getting over it. I mean, it's great. It gives us access to guests all around the world, and it was great during COVID lockdowns, but there's nothing like having someone in the studio. The dynamic is just so much nicer for everyone. So yeah, it'd be good to yeah, get you up to true. Sydney at some point. Yeah. I mean, you can make it your first breakout trip. Come and do a podcast with us in the studio. Yeah, it'll be good um, to to get out of anywhere. Like uh, it's been February, February since yeah. anyone's actually gone further than the country. I went to the Dandenongs, which is like a forty-five minute trip. Yeah, and that's it. That's as far yeah. as you can, we could go. And then we weren't allowed to go to the regional areas anymore. Plus, like being on the Truman Show with that big bubble, you just can't you can't leave. <laughs> well, the bubble was even worse because stage four. All restaurants, all cafes, you could not do anything. Bunnings, Bunnings was closed. You had to do online. 
and then yeah. go and pick it up. It was that. It was a really harsh lockdown, and it was a hundred days or something, wasn't it? I think it was longer than that. It's about one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty. It's crazy. It was, it was insane. It was insane. So, um, Mobin, if people listen to us thinking, wow, that's pretty cool stuff, how do they reach out to you? What's your website and what's your Instagram? So my Instagram is, the, the handle is uh, Dr. Uh, Master MD underscore MD because someone took Dr. Master, I couldn't get it. <laughs> and the and that's my real name, thank you very much. So I don't know who this Dr. Master is, but anyway. Yeah. And the uh, website with regards to chronic dissolve and issues is aestheticradiology.com.au and they can use the contact form to contact me. Um, that's no problem at all. Or you can message me on uh, Instagram. Um, no collabs, bro. <laughs> Just now, slide into the DMs, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I know that you get a bit embarrassed about this, but I think it's pretty cool. And when I mean, you just need to flag it with the people who don't know this. So the name Mobin Master, maybe people might remember back in 2008, a DJ released a song called Show Me Love or a remix of Show Me Love. Hmm. Um, Tell, tell us a bit about your, your DJing sort of background. Well, I, you know, through medical school, I uh, basically, I was a musician from, from when I was a kid. So I was played in bands and all that kind of stuff in the 80s. And then uh, in the 90s, I bought my first sampler and started getting into house music. In yeah. Adelaide, I did radiology and uh, used to do radio shows and race from the hospital to the radio show and then do study till about two in the morning, have a bit of a snooze and then play a recovery from four till 5 a.m. was my set every week. I don't yeah. know how I did gosh, that. Gosh, <laughs> that's intense. You're yeah, quite yeah, modest about good. it, but where did you end up charting and, and how big was that song? Show and, me then, love. and then Show Me Love, the singer that I worked with, I'd done songs with, she goes, I reckon I can nail Show Me Love. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I did a re-recording and um, produced it and no record label wanted it. Head Candy took it for the UK and then I released it. I created my own label because no one wanted it and I put it on Safari Music and next thing you know it, it's like a worldwide smash. Yeah. Only one person had covered that song since 94 or 5 yeah. and then this one just blew up like crazy and it got so big that um, it got mashed up by Hardwell, one of the – he used to be a number one DJ in the whole world and then um, it became a Swedish – it was on the Swedish House Mafia album and uh, they dropped yeah. off my name and all that kind of stuff and it became all political but – you know, Australia knows it's me, and uh, Brazil knows it's me. And they they kind of they kind of stole it for America and the UK, but that's life. Lucky I'm a doctor. Yeah, there you I'm going go. to play ten seconds of it so people know what we're talking about. Put it closer to the mic, Jake. Well, you've got to remember this. This is a classic. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> anyway, that's the one. Awesome. Well, love your work, mate. And it's good to see you and good to know that you're safe and back at it. Yes. Um, as soon as we can see each other, let's um, let's try and yeah. fly up or down. Yeah. And have a nice well, we're going to be going down there soon, Jake, to do some other projects we've been talking about. So maybe we'll drop in. Correct. Yeah, that's a good yeah point, if you actually. come in, uh, come, and, come and watch and uh, see what I get up to. And if we've got some ultrasound patients, we can... Um, you can, oh. you can have a watch and see what we get up to. I don't mind yeah. at all. You, you have to find um, me off, mate. I'm very, very keen. Yeah. Cool. Very well, listen, um, thank you for joining us again. Really appreciate your insights into all of this emerging fields. And um, yes. we'll speak to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Mobin. 
for our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests. 